I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the saints' communion. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the resurrection of the body. I believe in the life everlasting. But what about the days that I don't believe? So we're teaching a series at the moment called Doubt. And what we're trying to do in this series is reflect on what it means to be Christian and navigate having faith at the same time as also being aware of the fact that often we live with various doubts. And now traditionally what's happened is we've seen faith and doubt as sort of separate opposites in some sense, that they, they kind of are in different ends of a scale, and if you have one, you can't have the other. Uh, last week, uh, we talked from Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, uh, about a story where hopefully we found some solidarity in the idea that sometimes faith and doubt accompany one another. They can actually sort of be present in the same space. And, and not only are they sometimes present in the same space, but we find Jesus being okay with that. Uh, that we start to explore this notion that maybe following Jesus, being Christian, having faith and trust in God, isn't about being certain of everything all the time, but just being brave enough to journey along with him. Now, you can catch up on that sermon in the app or the podcast if you want to, but it kind of launches us this week into uh, our teaching, which again is back in one of the Gospels, this time the fourth Gospel of the New Testament known as John's Gospel. And I want to start right at the end of John's gospel, uh, just a few verses before he sort of kind of closes the whole gospel down, the kind of landing lights are on, the wheels are out, and John throws out this little comment in chapter uh, 20 for us, and, and he simply says this, he says, he says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John writes a whole gospel. He tells us about Jesus. He journeys us through this outrageous narrative, these huge ideas that, that float around in this text. And then at the end, he says, oh, by the way, the reason I'm telling you this story is I want you to believe in Jesus. But what does he mean by believe in Jesus? What is John talking about when he talks about faith? And again, often what happens in the contemporary climate is we hear the language of faith and we kind of assume we're talking about being certain. So what John wants you to be is absolutely certain that everything you've heard about Jesus is absolutely true. But of course, that certainty, that's not necessarily faith. And where does belief and faith and doubt fit into this journey of, of, of a writer who says, I want you to trust in Jesus, I want you to believe in Jesus, and that will be a path of life for you. But what is that going to look like for you? 
I sometimes wonder if we have this idea that you become a Christian, you start to believe in Jesus, and then some sort of kind of faith antivirus gets loaded into your system so that you now are just rock solid. And sometimes I think we perceive certain Christians to be like that. Like, yeah, look at them. They never have any doubt. It's as if they've got some, you know, one of those kind of doubt pop-up blockers that every time sort of some sort of doubt appears in their life, they just kind of jump right over it because they never ask awkward questions. They're never stumbled by those sort of complex moments in our lives. But is that really how the world works? Is that really how the world of faith works? Do we not have sometimes moments that shake our belief? Do we not have sometimes moments where doubts seem more prevalent than perhaps our faith? Sometimes it just seems really, really difficult to believe. And, and, and we live sometimes as Christians in this perception that we have this kind of safe bubble of certainty uh, and we're these kind of closed-minded people who just live in this little tiny bubble where we know what we believe and nothing's going to ever challenge that. But most of us, even in a room like this with a cross-section of various people from different journeys of life, most of us would relate to the fact that sometimes things happen in our lives. And all of a sudden, faith seems to look a lot more like doubt than like certainty. What's interesting is John's telling us this right at the end of his gospel. But what I find really fascinating is this verse doesn't just stand alone on its own on a blank page, but this verse comes immediately after a story. And the story that precedes this one particular verse is really interesting because Paul, Paul, I don't know where he came from, John says here in this particular verse that he's written this story so that you would believe. But the story right before this is about a man called Thomas. The text says this, Thomas, also known as Didymus, so these are two names which literally mean twin. He was one of the 12. So he's one of Jesus' kind of inside group of disciples. There's 12 of them. Well, if you read the story properly, one of them's not around anymore, but I'll save that cliffhanger for another day. Uh, Thomas, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Oh, where was Jesus? Well, again, this is John chapter 20. So if you've read John's gospel before, you kind of might know what's gone on in the story here. Jesus has been crucified and, uh, and Jesus is dead. And then all of a sudden this story appears where one of the ladies that followed Jesus uh, finds Jesus alive again. And in those days, that was quite unusual. And uh, so she was kind of surprised about it. And when she told the story, people didn't really believe her. Um, so then a few other people sort of bumped in. And kind of, there's this question, it just does seem like Jesus has maybe come back. And Jesus appears in an earlier story to the rest of the disciples. And Thomas wasn't there. Like of all the days <laughs> to not be there. <laughs> like, you know, three years of following this guy around up hills through deserts, avoiding getting lynched by mobs, you know, all sorts of crazy stuff. And the day that Thomas decides to take a day off, <laughs> Jesus comes back. You know what I mean? Like, what is Thomas thinking? Like, eh, I suppose he probably was hinting at it. If I'd really paid more attention, I maybe, maybe would have. Uh, this story reminds me of another story in my own life. And I'm going to tell you a story from my own life here that I am aware of the fact that this story is going to set my age up and also completely divide all of you this morning, okay? But I'm gonna go with the story anyway, if you're okay with the story that might leave you out. 20 years ago, I was in a band, and uh, we, were, we were unbelievable. Um, <laughs> I'm not gonna tell you what we were unbelievable with, but <laughs> critics said it was unbelievable that these people thought that they were a band, but 
But so we were in this band and, and, and we loved music as a result of, uh, well, actually, if you heard our band, you might not assume that we loved music, but we did. And, and so anyway, th this, this situation happened where this is getting towards the late 90s and the late 90s marked the beginning of the end of the career of one of the great bands of the 80s and the 90s, a band called R.E.M. Okay, so there's the divide beginning. Okay, <laughs> some people are like, what even is that? Others are like, the best band ever. So REM, we heard, were coming to Scotland to play a gig. Now that might not sound like a big deal to, to, to you guys that are in North America, but REM had never been to Scotland before. And this was the first time in their history they were gonna pay, play in God's own country. And, and so, and so we were really excited about this. And they were gonna play in a castle because if you're gonna play Scotland, you play a castle, right? And uh, because we all live in castles in Scotland, so it's really easy. It's really easy to get a gig in a castle. And so anyway, so, so uh, this castle is gonna be the, the, the sort of location for this REM gig. And we were really excited as a band because we all loved REM, especially our drummer. He was a crazy mad REM fan. The problem was the tickets sold out in like five minutes, okay, which in those days was fast. And, uh, because we didn't have internet, our phones were physically attached to our houses. And uh, you had to do lots of this sort of stuff to try and dial numbers. So by the time we got through, they were completely sold out. So we were gutty, like we were so depressed about not getting tickets to go see REM. So my friend and I, we hatched this plan that, wait a minute, this is a gig at a castle. Castles don't have roofs, right? So what we'll do is we'll go and we'll hang, we knew the town where this was happening and, um, and we thought what we'll do is we'll go and we'll hang out in like a bar or a coffee shop that has a, a kind of patio area that's next to the castle. Because we theorized that we could sit on the patio, you know, with a, with a drink and we could listen to our favorite band. It's not, it's not quite as good as the real thing, but it's close to the real thing. Are you with me? Our drummer was like, nah, it's too painful, man. He's like, I can't go and sit that close to REM and not actually be at the gig. So he went and played golf. <laughs> so we went to the gig. <laughs> we wandered up the hill with all the fans and there's all these fans with their tickets and they're all excited. And we know that we have to kind of navigate our way up this hill because then we go past the turnstiles slightly down the other side of the castle and there's the bar that we're gonna hang out in. But as we're walking up the hill, all of a sudden this security guard appears and he stops the crowd and he makes a little pathway and this car pulls up and then behind this car a limousine pulls up and right in front of my friend and I, the door opens and Michael Stipe steps out. See, the divide's getting bigger now. <laughs> and Michael Stipe steps out and then this other guy steps out to which one of my friends who's there says, that's the manager. And he turns and he looks at us and he says, nobody ever knows who I am. <laughs> and so he says, are you guys here for the gig? To which we said, no. <laughs> he said, what do you mean you're not here for the gig? Like we're in the crowd, right? He's like, what do you mean you're not here for the gig? And we're like, well, because we couldn't get tickets. He goes, you couldn't get tickets, but you came. And we said, well, we're gonna hang out in a bar and hopefully hear the music. And he gets back into his car and he gets back out of his car and he hands us front row seats to REM. And that's the basic point of my sermon on why you should believe in God. <laughs> the first thing we did was we went and found a phone and we called our drummer. And to this day, he will cry if you tell him that story. 
The man has two children, pastors at church, but is still really angry at us for the day we went to REM without him and sat on the front row. <laughs> and so Thomas, like, where was he? You know, like Jesus has come back from the dead and the disciples are like, yeah, Thomas isn't with us today. Like, like, and Thomas comes back and he hears the story about what he missed out. One of the most significant moments of history. He had front row, he was in the inner group and he was like, then he's lawn or shopping or I don't know what he was doing when he missed out on Jesus. So the disciples say to him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Like if Thomas doesn't see the scars, if he doesn't feel where Jesus was hurt, he's not going to believe. But listen, let me just read this again to you. But as I read this, I want you to just hold in your mind philosophically, what is Thomas doing here as he says this? Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. How is Thomas framing the world? How is Thomas shaping his understanding? What's Thomas saying when he says this? A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Because Thomas, for a whole week, never left the disciples. <laughs> this is, I mean, the Bible doesn't say that, but that's my vibe. Thomas is there, you know, he's there at the dinner table. One of the disciples gets up, he's deciding, do I go with him? Do I not go with him? Do I go with him? You know, <laughs> he's like, kind of just following them around. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came, stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Quite literally, Jesus says, don't be unbelieving, Thomas, but be believing. Like actually, what are you, what are you actually thinking about here, Thomas? How are you framing your reality? And Thomas's response to Jesus is very, very interesting because Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Now, a young Jewish man would regularly say the Shema, this beautiful phraseology that's in Deuteronomy where what we would confess as Jewish people at the beginning of the day is hero Israel, the Lord our God is the only God. The Lord our God. Now, and if you've been reading John's gospel from the very beginning, if you'd picked it up in chapter one and now you're in chapter 20, you would also pick up on something that this, this scene of doubt, this scene of unbelief, this scene of skepticism is the first place in the Gospel of John where anyone calls Jesus God. So we have this scene of doubt and God is right there identified in the middle of it. And Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. John continues, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of disciples which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. It's as if Jesus takes this story and now this story reaches out beyond the location that it's happening in and becomes a story for all of us. Because following Jesus from here on out is going to be in the purview of people who have not seen Jesus. 
So Thomas forms some sort of kind of transition in terms of how we might think about this, that he wants to see Jesus and touch Jesus and then he'll believe in Jesus. But Jesus kind of speaks to us through this text and says, but there's another way of thinking that needs to come. But I think it's interesting to note that this is the story that John precedes this sentence about. Like I've written these things so you should believe. And then he tells a story which doesn't really seem to be about belief. He tells a story that seems to be about kind of clunky belief. It seems to be about belief falling apart. It seems to be about doubt. And we can try and be clever as to how we piece that together, but maybe there's just something really simple going on in this. That whatever John thinks believing looks like, this story of Thomas somehow fits it. This story of Thomas makes sense in that sort of paradigm. So perhaps we need to relate to Thomas. Perhaps it's easy for us to relate to Thomas. Probably put on his shoes and wander around in them for a little moment and say, how would we feel if we were Thomas? His dreams have been dashed. Thomas hoped that following Jesus would be the path to this revolution, that Jesus was going to be this hero that was going to lead them to freedom, and now he's died. Thomas's worldview now becomes really shaky because what he thought was happening and how he thought the world is going to work isn't how the world is working anymore. Things are going differently for him. Some people might say that what Thomas begins to experience is the process of deconstruction. And by that we mean wherein that our deconstruction in this context, and it can mean a lot of things, but in this context means where we start to take apart what we knew. We start to take apart what we thought we were certain about and what we thought we'd learned about our faith. And essentially, we start kind of getting rid of what now appears to be inauthentic. And this is a common practice for Christians today, that we find ourselves journeying within the freedom of thought that we find ourselves in to sort of dismantle and deconstruct and take apart elements of our faith. And I'm a great believer, like I really am a great believer in examining faith, in thoughtful, considered and reflective thoughts about what it is that you believe analyze it, think about it seriously. Are you carrying this? However, I think it's worth us being aware that how we examine our faith can be quite difficult in our present time and culture because the context in which we live and breathe isn't neutral towards belief in God. The context in which we move and spend our time working or learning or, or recreating in isn't neutral about what it is to believe in Jesus. You might say that having faith is contested. In one sense, we live in a world that says, well, whatever you want to believe, that's fine with you. But actually, if it turns out that what you want to believe is an established faith like Christianity, if what you want to believe involves committing to a Christian community and journeying through this faith in Christ, it's amazing how quickly you find that that's not quite as welcomed as you might have thought it would be. That's not quite as what we meant when we said all beliefs are welcome. To be really precise, I think what we struggle with today is faith in the transcendent. His faith in the idea that there might be something unseen to this world, that there might be something beyond what we can make sense of within our current context. Faith in things unseen is so often what appears to be unbelievable. And this is why I think Thomas is at some level a sort of quintessential model for those of us who are postmodern disciples of Jesus. Because when he suggests that the only basis for him accepting resurrection is evidential, 
He kind of sounds like, I don't know if you hear this from Thomas, but he kind of sounds like a forerunner to the Dawkins, Dennett, Hitchens, and Harris of this world, the so-called kind of four horsemen of new atheism. The sense in where, in, well, I'll believe that if I can prove it. If you can prove it, then it makes sense. So if something's provable, testable, analytically able to be looked at and assessed for its value, then that might be true. But if something can't be tested in that particular manner, We find our culture and society now says that's highly doubtful and probably unwise to believe it. And this is difficult for us as Christians because broadly speaking, Christianity always wants to keep a broader view of the world in play. Christianity always wants to suggest that the world isn't simply imminent. The world isn't simply what you can see and feel and touch, but that there is a transcendent element to what's going on. There are things you can't see and can't touch. There is something beyond. Essentially, a way of saying it is that within the Christian faith, there is always a belief that there's more going on, that there's more to the world. So, So we reject the notion that this is as good as it gets and say there's something else, there's something other, there's something more. And what's often happened within, within our context, and just think about conversations you've had as we say these sort of things, and think about the, the things you've seen, the things you've read, and the, and the people you've talked to. What we see happening generally nowadays is that secular thought attempts to subtract anything transcendent. So anything that speaks to that which you can't see or test or hold, we kind of try and get rid of it because it's kind of backward and a little bit small-minded and, you know, and, and closed off to sort of rational ways of thinking. And and essentially, it's inauthentic. And secular thought then says that everything that goes on in the world has to fit within this sort of box, an imminent box, a box in which you can test and assess and analyze everything. And if it can't be done so in that box, then it's not true. Ironically, this is called open-minded. So the idea that the entire world falls into a box that we humans can make sense of is what is known as open-minded. And then you come along and say, well, hey, what if there's more? And immediately you're small-minded, closed-minded, and old-fashioned in your thinking. Can you see some of the irony in this? And Thomas works for us in this story as a kind of help guide us through this because notice what Thomas does. He says, if I can't touch it, If I can't feel it, if I can't see it, essentially Thomas says, if I can't make sense of it within this imminent box, it's not true. And Thomas becomes a sort of model for us of the journey that most of us work in our day-to-day lives, of this pressure, essentially to set a sort of buffer zone around us that says, this is what I'm willing to accept, and here are the rules about how I'm going to accept it. So it's not that Thomas doesn't want to believe in resurrection. It's not that he isn't even open to the possibility that Jesus could do that, but he has very, very strict rules about how he's going to make sense of that and how that's going to work. But let's just be clear. Insisting that everything is imminent and fits in this box is just as much a belief as the person who says, I think there's something more. The person that says, I think there's something more, can't necessarily test that more or even prove that more, but they believe that it's there. Likewise, the person who says there isn't more can't test or prove or make sense of that process. They just believe that there isn't. And I'm not the first person to say this, but it strikes me as interesting how often we divide it up into a sort of belief between belief on one side and fact on the other. But that's not actually what's happening when we make these sort of decisions. Thomas isn't saying he doesn't believe in Jesus. 
He's just shrinking down the box within, within which he'll accept that. And I find myself wondering if, if, as contemporary Christians, I wonder if one of the reasons we so often struggle with Christianity is that our deconstruction of our own faith is unknowingly an attempt to subtract the transcendent from our faith. So we say that we're Christians and we say that we believe in Jesus and we actually do, but we're always trying to fit it into this imminent frame. We're trying to box it into something that we can make sense of rather than allowing the transcendent mystery of God to be part and parcel of our lives. And so we find ourselves between belief on one hand and fact on the other but everybody is believing in something. Everybody's deciding that they want to see the world in a particular way. And this is where it's quite fascinating because what Thomas is doing is essentially trying to shove it all in the same space. And as I read this text as a contemporary postmodern, I find myself thinking, is that what I'm often trying to do? Am I actually no different from Thomas? When I actually want to defend my faith or lean in to show how my faith can work if you just make sense of this, that, and the next thing. So often I find myself caught in conversations about faith where really I'm just trying to do what Thomas does and say, well, hey, you can touch this or you can taste that or you can check this. And essentially I'm trying to prove my faith within this small box. But all I'm actually succeeding in doing is shrinking down God. The other thing is, when we're in this sort of world and context where we find ourselves, where it's belief on one side and in fact on the other, and therefore if we live in this box over here, we should be doubtful about that over, over there. This creates a kind of strange tension in our lives where for many of us, again, we kind of know you're not supposed to confess this in church, uh, but truthfully, doubt just is more attractive because it's kind of more trendy. It's kind of more the way we think. It's the form of how we process and think about things. So David Foster Wallace, for example, in an article that he wrote called All That says, consider the usual meaning of atheism, which as I understand it is a kind of anti-religious religion, which worships reason, skepticism, intellect, empirical proof, human autonomy, and self-determination. Think about that list of words for a second. Reason, skepticism, intellect, empirical proof, human autonomy, self-determination. Like these words are so deeply rooted in our popular psyche that they're almost fundamental concepts for what it is to be human. It's, they're the concepts in how we make sense of the world, how we build our arguments, how we construct defenses about what it is that we think. And as a result, what often happen, happens in any of our thinking processes is we appeal to these concepts, these features, to suggest that we've come to our conclusions on the basis of them. So you'll hear Christians often argue that the reason they're Christians, and then they'll kind of list off things using these sort of particular approaches, or perhaps more commonly, maybe you're at work one day and somebody comes in and they say, hey, you know what, I just read the latest book by such and such, or I watched this documentary the other night on television, and, and really what I've realized is I need to move away from faith because, because this kind of argument that I read really convinced me that there's no such thing as God. And the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, he says, whenever you hear anybody say this, don't believe them. It's not true. 
He says it's not really the argument that's convinced them. They haven't really been bought into an argument about science. They haven't listened to some scientist or some atheist tell them about how things actually work and they've thought, you know what, that makes sense. I'll now change what I believe. Actually, Taylor points out that really what gets us in this sort of context is that our society just likes the form of that argument. That argument sounds more socially acceptable. It's far more socially acceptable to walk into a public space and say, I've been reading some stuff and I don't believe in God, than it is to, to flip that the other way around. Walk into the same social space and say, I've been reading some stuff, now I do believe in God, and you realize that actually, we have a bias within our culture and context, and a bias that likes the sound of things that sound scientific. And so if it sounds like it's all happening within this imminent frame, within this box where we can make sense of things, then we like that more. And we prefer that to anything transcendent. We prefer that to God. And so belief is socially difficult. And we naturally then find arguments about non-faith, even if you're a Christian, if you grew up in this part of the world, if you grew up in the English-speaking world, if you grew up in the world more than likely in the last sort of 40, 50, 60 years, then you naturally will find it easier to accept non-faith arguments than faith arguments. Because you've been conditioned to think that way. I've been conditioned, I've been taught that way from when I was really small, that this is how you make sense of things, and this is how you test things. This isn't new, though. Paul, when he wrote to a church in Corinth in the first century, he basically pointed out to them that believing in Jesus, one of the things that made it so difficult was it doesn't quite fit the way we think. It doesn't quite fit our social context. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Or more recently, Flannery O'Connor, in a letter to a friend, said, it's hard to believe always, but more so in the world we live in now. It is hard to believe. I think it's important to confess that, that it's hard sometimes to believe. It's not just simply that you're dealing with the faith and the doubt and all of the sort of things that are churning away in your heart and soul and mind, but it's actually hard to believe because of where we live. It's hard to believe because of our culture and context. And I think this is something that I appreciate about Thomas. On one hand, he's working really hard to kind of hold on to the frame and the box with which he makes sense of the world. And his doubt is really trying hard to serve as a mechanism where it'll kind of shrink Jesus into that box and then he can make sense of it. Then on the other hand, of course, I appreciate Thomas's authenticity. He's not just wanting to take the disciples' word for it. He's not just gonna take the disciples' story and apply it to his own story and say, okay, their story's my story now. He wants his own story. Essentially, Thomas, Thomas doesn't want to live with faith by proxy. And I think too often, this is what our doubts do to us, that we find ourselves uncertain, we find ourselves not sure, and, and, and therefore, we've got two choices. The one choice is to try and get everything crammed into this box with which we can make sense of the world, and sometimes we can't do that, so what instead we do is we just kind of try and piggyback our beliefs onto someone else's. This happens in churches where people say, well, I'm not sure about that, but the pastor seems pretty certain, so we'll, we'll stick with him. Or, or what about children and their parents? Like many of us have had to journey this sort of process wherein at some point your faith journey that perhaps your parents has either has to become your own or you have to jo join your own new faith journey. 
Like I was a missionary kid, so my parents were like kind of, you know, they were, they were like key Christians in our church. Like they were, they were like, you know, prototypes of what happens to great Christians. They became Christians, they had a family, and then they went off to teach the gospel in other parts of the world. So I could kind of tag along. I got a good 18 years of just tagging around in their shadow as also being a great Christian because of who my parents were. And, and then at some point, I found myself realizing the wheels are falling off this wagon. I'm having to cut my own journey, and there comes a choice. Is this faith mine, or is this mine by proxy? And many of us, that's a challenge that we have with our own children, is how do we allow people to grow their own faith, to actually journey with Jesus in the pathways, perhaps, that we'd hope they would journey in, but it still be theirs. You can't rely on your friend to have your faith. Or more, more often what you see is this amongst husbands and wives, that one member of the family is really carrying all the weight for the other member of the family and, and they're just kind of tagging along beside each other. But here comes Thomas and he doesn't want a secondhand faith. He doesn't want a proxied faith. He's like, I gotta see it for myself. The verse that we read in worship kind of draws me towards this, this thought some more. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse two, the righteous is fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorned at shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's because at one level, our faith is, is always kind of secondhand. What Hebrews is saying is the key thing is where are you getting it from? Are you getting it from Jesus? Are you getting it from where you're supposed to get it? Are we trusting in Jesus who, who basically pioneered and perfected our faith? It always strikes me how easily we forget this. Christianity doesn't actually come along and contend an idea or a philosophy or an ideology. What Christianity is actually contending about is a person, a Jesus, who's at the center of this belief. And so Thomas has this problem where he has to make this leap of faith and he can't make the leap of faith because he wants the world to fit in this particular box and then he comes face to face with Jesus. And in this moment of being face-to-face -face with Jesus, he gets to kind of choose how it's all going to work for him. And it fascinates me, if you still got the text open or perhaps you look at it later, it fascinates me that Jesus offers Thomas the proof he wants. He goes, here's my side, here's my hands. Now if you look closely, you'll notice Thomas doesn't touch his side or his hands. And actually it's because we then start to see what's really going on in this story. It's not that Thomas is deconstructing his faith. It's not that Thomas is trying to fit everything down into this box, but that Jesus is allowing Thomas to go on a journey that deconstructs him. You see, because the problem for Thomas isn't just what he's thinking, it's how he's thinking. He's assuming that the answer will be to be able to fit it into the way he understands the world. But Thomas learns, like all of us at some point have to learn, that sometimes we don't doubt the things we think we doubt. It sounds good to demand the proof. It sounds good to live in this imminent box. But when we see Jesus, when Thomas comes face to face with Jesus, he realizes that's not actually what he was looking for. All his certainties are deconstructed because he's face to face with the scars and the nail holes of Jesus. The very unbelievable thing is now the only thing in Thomas's world that makes sense. And I think that's why this story is so important to be the last story of John's gospel or to be one of the last stories in this part of this text. Because this story frames what real belief looks like. 
It's trust in Jesus. It's belief and hope that there is something other, that there is more, that transcendent is the way the world that is wired. And it's having the kind of trust to believe that there is a transcendent world out there, even though we live in a context where everything's being shrunk down into proofs, deconstruction, and imminence. But let's get it right. We're still saying exactly the same as what we were saying last week. Like the father last week, Jesus is okay that Thomas doubts. Like Thomas's questions don't get him kicked out of the team. Jesus doesn't go, see my hands, see my side, get out. He doesn't say, where were you last week when I appeared? You get one chance and then you've blown it. None of that happens to Thomas. He doesn't lose his membership. Jesus is there for him and even offers him the proof that he wants. For me, what's fascinating about this story is that Jesus can be okay with our doubts but he's also aware of what our doubts can do to us. Our doubts aren't neutral. They often expose the worldview that we're living within. And sometimes our doubts expose the fact that we don't quite think the way that we think we think. And our doubts, as much as Jesus is gracious towards us and allows us to journey with them, the invitation to put them aside is because what they're trying to do is shrink your world, to subtract the transcendent, to flatten the earth. Because our doubts are not always as neutral as we think they are. The myth of deconstruction, writes Connor Gwynn, relies on another myth, that life is static, and that once you find the truth, everything's settled. The problem with both myths is that the truth is a person who was and is and is to come, who makes himself known, especially when your life has been deconstructed. So let me pray for you this morning. May you live in a transcendent world where faith, trust, and belief open the doors that bring you face to face with Jesus. May your doubts not shrink your world but rather bring you to the nail-scarred hands of the truth, who was and is and is to come. And may God's grace and peace be with you. Amen and amen.